today we're going to be looking at John chapter 15, so if you have a Bible or um, app for that, open up to there, we're going to be looking at this passage. John 15 has been a, um, a favorite passage of mine from a, for a long time. It, it falls right in the middle of this, um, uh, between John 13 and 17, which is, is a lot of it's just a kind of a monologue of Jesus. It starts with the, uh, with the, the, the Last Supper with Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Jesus does a lot of teaching, kind of um, one-on-one with his disciples through there, all the way through 17, right up before uh, the night, before his crucifixion. And um, there's just a lot there. There's a, there's a prayer in that passage, not in 15 that we're looking at today, but later on in, in 17, I think, where Jesus actually prays for you. So um, it's, there's a lot of cool stuff in this passage. But John 15 has been a favorite of mine for a long time. Um, when I was, uh, the summer after my freshman year of college, I spent a summer in California um, going around to different churches, doing more vacation Bible schools than I ever want to do again, and, uh, but I, I was with a group of college students just going around to different churches, helping them do different stuff and uh, other evangelistic activities, and I was really excited about the summer. One, I was going for, I, I grew up in Alabama, and so I was getting to go to California, I'd never been there before, that's cool. And uh, Northern California, beautiful place. And second, I was a single college guy, and I was going to be on a team with all other girls. Everyone else on the team was girls. I thought, this will be great. It was not. These girls didn't get along so well with each other. Uh, just That's just the way it worked out. I got put in the middle of a lot of it sometimes, so it wasn't all that much fun. Um, but early in the summer, one of our supervisors said, hey, y'all should do a Bible study together through the summer. I don't know if she saw, like, coming conflict or just thought, you know, this would be good for you to do. And whatever the Bible study was that we used, we, it, it kind of opened up with this passage from John 15. And there was a kind of a couple of significant things about that. One, we were in Northern California, which is, you know, wine country, and this whole passage is about vineyards and the vine and all that, so that was kind of cool. But the second is, and we'll read through the passage in a second, it talks about how our lives are fruitless apart from him. And I'm kind of this naive college student. I think I'm going to California. I'm taking God to all these heathens in California when in reality God's been at work everywhere long before I showed up on the scene. But whatever I did that summer was pointless apart from God's blessing, a point from, apart from the fruitfulness that God would provide. So let's read John 15, 1 through 11. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. 
If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for giving us this great image of what it is to abide in you, to live in you, to be a part of what you're doing, and your, and your faithfulness to... Uh, make what we do for you fruitful if we will abide in you as we do it. And so, God, I pray that this time would be fruitful, that uh, we would hear from you through your word, and that our lives and the lives of those around us would be changed as a result. In your name I pray. Amen. So why a vine? Why this imagery of a vine? It may be kind of a silly question because the Bible is full of metaphors, right? Right? Those of you that have taught, those of you that have little kids, metaphors are a great way of explaining complex uh, concepts to people. You take something that people are familiar with, and you use that to explain something more complicated. Jesus does that lots of times. Scripture does that lots of times. Paul, he talks about the church, and he has lots of, of metaphors for the church. He calls it a body, a temple, a family, a bride. Um, Jesus himself uh, he, he refers to himself often as a shepherd or as a gate, uh, keeping his sheep uh, protected from the wolves outside. So metaphors are used a lot in Scripture. They make it easier to understand things. And for this society, uh, using an agricultural reference or agricultural metaphor makes a lot of sense, right? A lot of these people uh, either worked in vineyards or some kind of farming situation where they own farms. And so they were f very familiar with it. And in our day today, maybe if Jesus were to have shown up in Wichita, he would be an airplane, right? Because everyone here knows how airplanes work, or some you pretend to, those of you that build it, and magically they really just fly. I know that's how it works. But, but that's how Jesus, that's, maybe that's what Jesus would have done. He, he takes something that's familiar and make it, uh, and, and to, to use that symbolism to help us understand what he's trying to teach. But as far as the vine specifically, I think that there's more to it than that. It wasn't just random that Jesus chose to say, I am the vine. But we have to go to the Old Testament to get at that. Now the Old Testament, I remember I grew up in church, and as a kid, the Old Testament was the best testament, right? It's the best part of the, of the Bible. Why? Well, you've got these great stories, right? You've got the good guys, and you've got the bad guys. You've got the heroes, and you've got the villains. You've got talking animals. Uh, you've got these great love stories. Not that as a little boy I was that interested in the love stories. But you've got this drama, and you've got all this stuff going on in the Old Testament. It's really interesting. And as a young boy, what's really cool about the Old Testament is you've got, all this, you've got some gross stuff in there too, right? You've got, uh, I don't know if you remember, one of the favorite stories of every little boy in the, in the Old Testament is the story of Judge Ehud and King Eglon, right? You're familiar with this story? You've got Eglon, or Eglon, who's this, who's this evil king. He's kind of a big guy. He's very fat. And Ehud, he takes this dagger into the king's room and gets everybody else to leave. And then he stabs him. And he's so fat that he loses his, his dagger inside the king's gut, right? That's really gross. Very boy. And then when he's escaping, do you remember what he tells the guards where King Ehud is? He's in the bathroom, right? So it's full of stuff that, as a little boy, you love. And in fact, the Old Testament is full of stuff that if it were in a movie, there's no way your parents would let you watch it, right? Because it's real life. It's real 
stuff. But then you, a little later, like in college, I remember, and, and when I first came uh, to Wichita to work in, in college ministry with college students, the Old Testament came really hard to explain, right? There's all these weird laws in the Old Testament. And do we have to follow those laws? And if we don't, why don't we have to follow those laws? And if we do have to follow some of them, but not all of them, like which ones do we follow, which ones do we not? And then there's all these wars, and there's violence, and there's God telling his people to do things that seem wrong, seem evil from our perspective. It's hard to understand, and how in the world does all this fit with Jesus, right? How does the Old Testament fit with Jesus, who's this really loving guy, and you've got this God of the Old Testament, how do these things fit together? So sometimes it becomes a little bit easier than even to ignore the Old Testament. We just, we're going to be New Testament Christians, whatever that means. The Christians of the first century, their whole Bible was the Old Testament. So, so how do we reconcile all of this? The reality is all these questions are hard. Some of these things are hard to deal with. But the Old Testament gives us lots of help when we get to the New Testament, including this issue of why Jesus called himself the true vine. In the Old Testament, there are lots of references to vines and vineyards. Um, the first is when uh, Noah gets off the ark, the first thing he does is he plants a vineyard, right? Throughout the Old Testament, the vine and the fruit of the vine is a sign of peace and prosperity and plenty for God's people. When Abraham is, is, is talking to the people, giving them a pep talk about the promised land that God is going to give to them, he talks about the vast vineyards that are in the promised land. When Solomon ruled over Israel, much later in the promised land, when Solomon was ruling and Israel was in a time of peace, it's described as a time when every man sat under his vine. And throughout the Old Testament, the fruit of the vine, the grapes, the wine produced from the grapes, is used in celebration and worship of God. So this is, this is a symbol that runs all the way through Scripture, a metaphor that runs all the way through Scripture. And then over and over again as well, Israel is referred to as the vine or as the vineyard of God. So we have this generic use of the vine, and then we have this very specific use of the vine. In Psalm 80, the psalmist says, speaking about God, he says, You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river, talking about Jesus or talking about God bringing Israel out of Egypt, establishing them and seeing them grow fruitful. And he's using the vine to describe this. And then in Isaiah chapter 5, he says, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard, God's vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and he cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it and he looked for it to yield grapes. This is the great care God took for his vineyard that he loved so much. He brought it out. He put it in a fertile place. He cleared off all the rocks so the thing could take root and grow, and he protected it 
because that's what you do to fruit-bearing plants when you want to take care of them and make them grow. Those of you, maybe some of you are gardeners, you know that that's, you have to plant the plant in just the right place, just the right shade, just the right water to make it do what it's supposed to do. As I said before, I, I grew up in Alabama. My whole family is still there, and so I have, I have three kids. They're all each a couple of years apart, and they've spent some time in Alabama at, at my grandparents' house, and in their backyard, they had this huge blueberry bush. I mean, it's taller than me. It's a huge blueberry bush, and so uh, they would go out to this blueberry bush, especially my oldest daughter, who at the time was probably six or seven, and, and she would take this bowl out there, and know, so these blueberries are good, and these are not, and so she would pick the blueberries, and then they go inside and eat the blueberries, and she loved them. And so the next day, she wanted to do the same thing, and so she skipped the bowl entirely, right? It's just directly from the bush into her mouth. She loved blueberries. So then when she came back home to Kansas, and we don't have a blueberry bush, we have to go to Dylan's to get blueberries, and Dylan's is very proud of their blueberries. <laughs> they're, they're, they're very expensive, and so we didn't get as many blueberries. And so, okay, well, we'll bring back some, a, a blueberry bush sprout from Alabama and plant it in our backyard. Well... We have a younger son who at the time was two or three, and there's no safe place for a fruit-bearing plant in the backyard of a two-year-old boy, right? There's no safe place for it to be. But Corinne, our daughter who loved the blueberries, understood if I protect this blueberry bush, then someday I can eat blueberries straight from the bush, just like at uh, grandma, grandma's house. And so she understood, I protect this from Jonathan as he's kicking the ball or as he's running around or whatever. And so eventually we got blueberries from that. That's what you have to do with fruit-bearing plants. You protect them. And so that's what God did with his vineyard. He protected it, expecting it, as Isaiah chapter 5 says, for it to yield grapes. But it didn't. If you continue in Isaiah chapter 5, it says it yielded wild grapes. And if you can continue in Psalm 80, the first passage I read, it says, why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it and all that move to the field feed on it. Israel wasn't faithful. It was protected. God gave it a perfect place to be fertile and be fruitful and grow and all that, but it didn't produce uh, the grapes, the fruit expected because it wasn't faithful and God removed the protection from it. And we know what happened, right? Israel was a kingdom and then it was divided, and then it was taken over, and then it fell, and it was gone. Over and over and over in the Old Testament, God uses the vine as a picture of this. In Deuteronomy, Jeremiah, Hosea, Ezekiel, Amos, Micah, Zephaniah, the same metaphors played out over and over. Israel as this vine that God protected and planted in this fertile place, but eventually it was destroyed because it wasn't faithful. And then Jesus says, in Isaiah or in John chapter 5 I am the true vine. So what is Jesus saying about himself? Now think about who Jesus is talking to here. Jesus is talking to his disciples, a bunch of Jews, a bunch of guys that grew up hearing all these stories, hearing the scrolls read in temple uh, week after week being taught and 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 these are the stories of their childhood. These are the stories of their religion. These are these are the things that they understand. And Jesus comes and he says, "I am the true vine. So what does that mean about Jesus? Well, it means he's not going to bear wild fruit, right? He's the faithful vine. He is faithful to God. He is going to be fruitful in the way God intended. He does not rebel against God and earn, earn his wrath and the removal of his protection. Instead, he is faithful. He does not rebel. He is obedient. He's remained faithful to the gardener. 
But he doesn't just say, I am the true vine. He goes on and he says, and my father is the vine dresser. And the vine dresser is just the gardener, the one who keeps the vine, the one who planted the vine. Now in the Old Testament, who is the vine dresser? Who is the gardener? It's God. And while we don't necessarily recognize this as we read this, they certainly would have, that this is one of the clearest ways that, God, that Jesus claims to be the Son of God. My Father is the vine dresser. My Father is God. Now, we don't get this as well because we don't grow up with these stories, but there's some correlations here that we, could, that we could draw. Like if I were to say to you, my Father leaps tall buildings in a single bound, you know that my Father is Superman. Good. If I were to say, my Father killed Anakin Skywalker, then you know my Father is I don't want to do any spoilers here, but I think we're kind of past that now. Or if I were to, this is the hardest one. I don't know if anybody gets it. My father is the boy who lived. Then who is my father? There you go. Who got it? Harry Potter. There you go. In the sound booth. Good job. Right? We have these things in our culture, and that's exactly what Jesus was calling back on. Jesus was calling these things, or calling uh, these things to mind and the disciples, and he was saying, Look, this is who I am. I'm the true vine. I am the son of God. My father is the vine dresser. This is who I am. And then in verse 5, he says, We are the branches. John 15, 5. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So what does this mean? We are one with Christ. Now, we're distinct from Christ. We're not little gods. We're not little deities, right? We've got the vine, and we've got the branches. They're distinct things, but they are connected. They are intimately connected. They are one. We are one with Christ. And it's the connection to the vine that brings life. When it comes to branches on a vine, they're worth nothing if they're not connected to the vine. In fact, in verse 6, it says, apart from the vine, we are only good for firewood. That's all we are worth in this life, apart from our connection to the vine, apart from our connection to Christ. This also means that we are God's people because of Christ. Now, for us, this isn't, again, this isn't such new news, right? We know this, that our only way that we are made right and that we are connected to the Father is through our connection with Christ. But for the disciples, for the Jews, this is a big deal. Up until this point in the Jews', in the Jews religious understanding of things, their relationship to God was determined because of their, their uh, being related to, family-wise, to Abraham, to Jacob, right? I'm a Jew. I'm a descendant of Abraham. Therefore, I am good with God. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus says that the vine are those whose identity is defined by their relationship to Christ, the true vine, not your relationship to Abraham, not your relationship to your Jacob but your relationship to me, Jesus, the true vine. And he also says we are fruitful when we abide in Christ. Now, what does abide mean? I don't use that word a lot in everyday language. I don't think that's a word we use a lot. So what, what does that mean? Well, I did college ministry for a while. One time I was at this conference, and this guy talked about him doing a sermon on this passage with uh, some college students. And he talked about how um, 
as branches on the vine of Christ, you know, we're, we're attached to Him, and the vine is growing, and it's healthy, and it's great, because it's, you know, it's Jesus. And so, if we're going to be vines on the, on the, or branches on the vine of Christ, then we, we have to get all of our sustenance from Him, right? Because vines don't have a direct connection to the ground to get what they need. They're connected to the, the trunk, or the, the main part of the vine, to Jesus. And that, that sustenance comes through sap, right, that flows through the plant. And so if we're going to be good branches, we need to be really good sap suckers attached to the vine of Christ. And we need to suck all the sap that we can get as branches out of the vine of Christ, right? He finishes his sermon, feeling really good, I'm sure. And then this botany major comes up to him. Now, a botanist is a plant scientist. And so this botany major was studying, they know a lot about plants. And so she comes up to him and says, hey, that was really great. You know, you're right. Uh, branches, they really have to rely on the vine or the trunk of the tree or whatever to get what they need from the ground because, you know, they have no connection. That's all right, but they have no other way to do it themselves. But they really don't have any capacity to suck either. That's not what branches do. Really, all they do is just hang on. They're just attached. What determines how much sap flows from the vine or the trunk into the branches is not the branches sucking ability, but it's, it's the quality and the, and the size of that connection to the vine that determines how much sap gets into the branches themselves. And so abiding is not sucking the sap of the vine of Jesus. Abiding is a life just like these branches of reliance upon Christ as our life. We're hanging on. And the quality and the, and the size of that connection to Him matters, but we're reliant completely on Him as our life. And Jesus modeled this for us, right? We look at what Jesus did. John is full of verses that talk about Jesus' reliance upon the, upon the Father for everything. In John 6.57, Jesus says, as the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. Jesus relied on the Father for his life. In John 5, 19, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Jesus relied upon the Father for his actions. He did nothing apart from what he saw the Father doing. In John 14, Jesus says, Do not believe that I am in the do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Jesus relied upon the Father for his words, his life, his actions, his words. He relied upon the Father. For everything. And abiding in Christ is relying on Christ as our everything, as Christ relied upon the Father for our everything, even his life. So, what does that look like? In verse 10, he tells us If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. An abiding life is a life that relies upon Christ for everything. It's a life that is lived in obedience to Christ. Now that seems 
like, well, duh, right? We obey Jesus. We hear that all the time. But it's not just any obedience. It's not legalism. Legalism is a fear of God's wrath. I obey God because I'm scared to death of what he's going to do to me if I don't obey. Is that how Christ obeyed God? No. Christ didn't live in fear of God's wrath, and we don't have to either. We are in Christ. We have no fear of God's wrath. God's wrath has been taken care of on our behalf by Christ. So we don't obey God out of fear of his wrath. We do not obey God for legalism. We also don't obey God to earn God's favor. Is that why Christ obeyed God? Did he hope that God would approve of him that day if he obeyed him just right? No. And we don't have to obey him for that way for that reason either. In Christ, we already have God's favor favor upon us. You can't make God any more happy with you than he is because you are in Christ. You have nothing to fear, either his wrath or his disapproval. He has approved you because of what Christ has done. Our obedience is not for either of those reasons. Instead, it's in response to what has been done for us in Christ. Tim Keller, a pastor in New York City, puts it this way. He says, religion is, I obey... Therefore, I am accepted by God. I do this, and then God does that. That's religion. I obey, therefore, I am accepted by God. But that's not Christianity. That's not what the gospel says. The gospel says, I am accepted by God because of what Christ has done. And therefore, I obey. It's obedience that flows from a response to what has already been done for us, not obedience that is seeking a response from God of love or favor. That's already taken care of for us in Christ. Abiding life is a life filled with showing mercy to others because of the great mercy that has been shown to us in Christ. An abiding life is a life that sees others as worthy of our love instead of objects of our anger or our lust, or our contempt, because Christ looks on us with love. An abiding life is a life forgiving others because whatever they have done to to put themselves in our debt pales in comparison to the great debt we have been forgiven in Christ. How can we hold grudges when no grudge has been held against us by God? And why? Why? Why does Jesus lay all this out for us? John 15, verse 11. Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Or in the NIV, it says that your joy may be complete. This completes our joy. A life abiding in Christ, being a branch in his vineyard, bearing fruit for his kingdom, Obedience that flows out of thankfulness. This is joy. Now, God is not primarily about our happiness. That may be a shock to some of you. That's not primarily what he's concerned with. He's not, you, you, having a, uh, you being sad 
and making your life all perfect and happy. That's not primarily what he's about. He's more about your holiness. But he is concerned with your joy. And he's given the instructions for it right here. How do you have a life filled with joy? How can your life be made complete or your joy may be complete in your life? This is it. Abide in Christ. Walk in his ways. Live a life that's characterized by obedience to him and not characterized by selfishness or greed or lust or fill in the blank for whatever your life is characterized by, if not characterized by obedience to Christ. There's a couple of ways that you might respond to this. One is you may realize you are not a branch. You have no connection to Christ. When you look at, at branches attached to a vine, attached to a tree, and you think about your life, you cannot figure out any way that metaphor fits for your life. You're not there. And according to what this says, your life is good for nothing but firewood. But see, Jesus invites you to change that. He invites you to become a branch in his vineyard. He invites you to have a life that is fruitful and joyful if you will follow him and walk in him. You may believe, you know, I am a branch, but I'm really not all that fruitful. I look at my life and I can't really point to ways that God's at work. I can't see any, you know, you can look at a branch that's just hanging out there and it's not fruitful and you're like, well, what's the point of that branch? And you think about your life and its relationship to Jesus and you're not really sure what the point of your life is. There's no fruitfulness here. I mean, everything I'm doing, I could do on my own. That's not a fruitful life. A fruitful life, you can point to things and say, there's no way this would have happened were it not for God. Are you living a fruitful life? Are you living an abiding life? As we close the service this, eve- this, after- this morning, I-, I invite you to-, to-, to think about those two questions. Are you a branch? Are you a fruitful branch? Are you abiding in Christ? Is your life characterized by the fruitfulness that comes with abiding?